going to continue our ascent today. For those who were here last week, we started looking at 15 different psalms. Begin with Psalms 120 and go through Psalms 135, and they're titled Songs of Ascent. We described that they were not written by the same person. In fact, David wrote four of them. The first one we're going to read today he wrote. Solomon wrote one, and the others are not attributed to a certain author. And so we can be fairly certain that they weren't uh, designed to go together necessarily, like purposefully, but they do have a point that we're looking at. And we discussed how uh, Jerusalem is a city that's set on a hill and the temple at the very top of it. Um, and so that there would be an ascent or a journey from the valley below up to the temple. And that these very well might be a series of psalms and praises sung by those who were journeying up to the temple. And so um, we're looking at the third one today. And I want to read it first, which is Psalms 122. And it reads this way, a song of a sense of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, and was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, and thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that they may be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls, and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And as we look at this chapter, this short chapter, no doubt the first verse is one you are familiar with. In fact, I believe I have quoted it multiple times since being here. But look at that first word, I was glad. This is a personal thing. Now, we are glad to be here today, but I am glad to be here today. And as I keep saying over and over again, this is a personal, intimate, one-on-one -on -one relationship that we have with the Lord. And so ask yourself, are you individually, am I happy today? Am I glad to go up to the house of the Lord? No one can make you glad and then maybe we should secondarily ask if we consider this, and we'll talk about this in a minute, how much this applies to the church as a whole. But ask yourself the question, are you individually happy because you get to be engaged with the God who made everything? Or are you happy because we're going to have lunch after church today? Or because you get to see your friends? Or fill in the blank. This is important for us to understand. I was glad, the psalmist says. I was glad. We also notice that it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You know, children are often happy to go to their parents' house, especially as you get older, or maybe a grandparent's house, because we call it home. And we're even more happy when we get to go with other people. 
I said, said, let us not lose uh, sight of the fact that this is a singular instance. I am glad, but I am glad because I'm going to the house of the Lord because they said, together we go up. And this idea that we are going to gather together to listen to God's word, to sing psalms of praise to him, and to do things together makes us happy. And that is a very good thing. As a group, as a company, we can fellowship and rejoice together. Are you glad to go to the house of the Lord? Are you glad that others are encouraging you to go to the house of the Lord? Are you glad that somebody asked you to go? I am. What a privilege we have. It's not even a command. It says here, let us go to the house of the Lord. It doesn't say go. We get an opportunity. We get an opportunity every single day that we wake up to go into the house of the Lord. Yes, we are commanded to do it, but here the psalmist is saying we get an opportunity. Let us go to the house of the Lord. What a privilege that we actually have. Now, understand, and we'll continue to bring this out throughout the service, but the house of the Lord is where? It's not in Jerusalem anymore. When Christ conquered death, when the temple curtain was ripped in half, opening the most holy place, the place where God himself set on earth to public view, it indicated that he is no longer there. God is in heaven and Jesus Christ, the spirit of God is living inside of those who love him. And so our very bodies have become the temple of God. And so when we say, let us go up to the Lord, we can do that by ourselves wherever we are. Because if you know the Lord, then God lives inside of you and you are his temple. What a privilege. I don't have to save up my money and take a journey to go to Jerusalem and see the place where the temple was and think about, oh, how great it was for the period of time that it stood there. Because I can get out of my bed in the morning and be at the very temple of God by opening my eyes. And how often we forget that. And how often we don't go up. Let us go to the house of the Lord. Verse 2 says, our feet have been standing. And your translation may be a little bit different. But the point and the struggle behind that is our feet is either have been or are standing. It's a present tense verb. It is describing the fact that we are standing before the Lord within the gates of Jerusalem. Remember last week? Just stand. and Our feet will not be moved. That's what the psalmist told us last time. What are we told in the New Testament? Over and over again, just stand. When the devil throws all kinds of things against you, stand. It doesn't say fight. It just says stand. Just stand. And here we are standing within the gates, O Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 3 and 4 have a very unique aspect to them. Again, it's talking about Jerusalem specifically. It says, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, as a decree for Israel to give thanks in the name of the Lord 
There the thrones for judgment were set, and the thrones for the house of David. Bound firmly together. Jerusalem was built a little bit different than other capital cities, if you will. I don't expect many of you to be great ancient historians. I'm not either. But if you think about the way we even build cities today, when you go to somewhere that they want to emphasize power and importance, think about the U.S. Capitol, for example. There's broad expanses. There's the National Mall. You can get over the fence to get to it now. And there's this grand view that separates these buildings. And you can see off in the distance. Jerusalem was not built that way. It was built very compacted, very together. There's not grand vistas of avenues that lead into the temple. Instead, there's small, winding streets of tightly packed together buildings made out of rock and stone. And as a whole, it may look beautiful, but individually, it's not necessarily the most attractive thing. Now, here's the point for all this, the spiritual point. We have these close buildings, these neighborhoods that are together, these rock structures that stand strong and are a good defense. The other thing about the city is because it's built the way that it is, everyone knows when it's under attack because it's built so tightly compacted together. We too, as believers, need to be tightly woven together with each other. Christianity is not an opportunity for one person to have a grand pathway that points to them to raise someone above someone else. It is an opportunity for all of us to come together, to be bound firmly together, as my translation says, to have a defense against what? Everything outside. So that we all know when another one is under attack. So that we can support each other. So that we can be unified, together, bound firmly together. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. And we as believers are to be firmly bound together. Ephesians 4 and 5 says, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Just one. We are not and cannot be a bunch of individual, completely autonomous little houses that become a city. If we want to know the power of the Lord, if we want to stand, as the scriptures say, in defense of the enemy, then we must be together. This is why we have churches. This is why we have groups of believers who come together to serve the Lord together. And individually... We may not look that great, but together there's tremendous power because the Spirit of the Lord dwells among us. And we can be firmly bound together. When we are together in unity, there is joy. When we are not unified, there isn't joy. Notice it talks about the tribes going up. This is something I want to just highlight just for a minute. When our church, let's get real specific, when this church is unified, when it's bound together like it should be for a common purpose and a common goal, other people are attracted to it. 
just like they entered Jerusalem. People from outside will come and be drawn up into who we are, not because of the grand vistues that we have or the amazing buildings, but because they see the power of us bound together, serving one God, one Lord, under one baptism. Because we are together, one, serving Him. And there is great power and attraction to that. And people will come and gather with us. They will come and be boundly, or found, bound firmly together. Righteous men love judgment because they don't fear it. If you fear judgment, then consider why. See, this psalm talks about judgment. It says, there the thrones for judgment were set. Why is that a positive thing? We think of judgment often from a worldly perspective as a very bad thing. Don't judge me. And certainly we don't want to be judged very often because we end up being found what? In need of punishment. But the reality is, if we are firm in who we are in Christ, when we are bound together and living in unity, we should love judgment and justice because we know that punishment either helps us get better and gets us on the right path, or it rewards us for doing the right thing or penalizes those who are not. And so we are to love justice and seek out the judgment of the Lord, and we should let it be firmly set. It goes on and talks about pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is really important as I talked about us being bound firmly together as a body of believers. For the sake of our brothers and sisters, we must seek peace at a high price. That means we have to put aside some of ourselves individually and seek out the peace of others. If we do not have peace within a church group that is together, we will not have success. Maybe you've been to a church that is struggling with internal peace. I don't think we struggle with that. I think we actually do really well. Internal peace is vital. Strife, suspicion, divisions, rumors, gossip, these things are like a deadly cancer to a church, to a group of believers. I have a quote here I'd like to read you from Spurgeon. It says, Peace is prosperity. There can be no prosperity which is not based on peace, nor can there long be peace if prosperity is gone. For decline of grace breeds decay of love. That's kind of a summary of what we're talking about in these few verses. When we gather together, when we are bound firmly together, we should, for our brother and sister's sake, seek peace among us. This should be a place among all other places that we come together and give grace to our brothers and sisters. Even when we think they've offended us, or even if they have offended or wronged us, we should seek out peace for the church's sake, for our sake, and for theirs. 
And in fact, we should do this. The, uh, the author says in verse 9, indicates we should labor. It says, I will seek for the house of the Lord. Are you willing to work for peace? And again, just so there's no miscommunication, because I'm speaking passionately upon this, I'm not saying this because I think this is a real issue in our church currently. I'm saying to remind us to have grace and mercy toward others, to seek peace, to physically work for it, to do everything we can to have peace, because having peace among us is vital to our success, and it's what will make others want to come in. So let us continue to work for peace, both within ourselves and the Lord, and within the body of believers that we have gathered here. We know this will bring success. Acts 9.31 gives us an example of that. So the churches throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit is multiplied. These first churches were being multiplied and built up because they had peace, because they had unity, because they were working to develop those things. Now, I want to pause here and give us just a word of caution. Perhaps some other time we can talk about the position that we as Christians ought to take toward the country of Israel. But I do want to just give one quick caution. As Christians and as believers, we ought to be careful not to worship the country of Israel too highly. I've seen this in many churches, I've seen this in many individuals, that somehow we read verses such as pray for the peace of Jerusalem and to be friends with Israel is to receive a blessing, and we take that so far we lose sight of who we're actually worshiping. I don't think it's wrong to have a bumper sticker that says pray for the peace of Israel, but who should we really be seeking peace with? The Lord. It's not wrong to do these things, but it can be taken too far. In the same light, we can take this too far for our individual church groups as well. And we can become so devoted to this thing, this word that we developed, or I guess you could say the Germans, because it's based on a German word, the church, that we can begin to worship it and lose sight of the one who we should be worshiping. So let us be careful when we look at these verses and translate them and try to understand in context how to apply what it says to us today. Let us not go to an extreme and say, well, this means that we must always support Israel in everything that it ever does and never criticize it, because that surely can't be right. And it also means that we should not say, well, the church is always right as a body and we should always support it and it never fails and it's always right and does everything correct, because we certainly know that is not the method either. So let us be very careful and understand what it is that we are talking about. And what we are talking about here is having a proper perspective. This body of believers that is gathered here today is vitally important. But we must not lose sight of the one that we worship over the former function of those who are here today. Because the Lord is higher. We look unto him as the first few songs of ascent said. So let me make this, or try to make this clear. 
There was a time that God lived in form on this earth, in the Ark of the Covenant. And there was a time that that was stationed in Jerusalem, in the temple. And that it was right for people to go and to physically worship there as they did, as I think these songs celebrated as they went up and to. But when Christ ascended after his death to the Father, and the temple curtains were open, I think it's very clear that we are now the temple of God. First Corinthians says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so when we think about the temple, we must think about ourselves, because if you are saved, God lives inside of you. So after Christ's ascent, you catch the relationship with, this, with the, the psalm here, the ascent, the house that we're talking about, the Lord's house, is now within us. And we are bound firmly together in the Spirit. And that Spirit is one of peace. And we should seek after peace with those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ every opportunity that we get. Now let me continue on to Psalm 123. This is a short four verses. Let me read it. Psalms 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt. Our soul has more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And so here in context, we see the first few uh, chapters that we've been looking at. We see the first one, we have a lament of our troubles, and then an encouragement as we look up to the hills and we rest in the security of the Lord. Then we delight in the house of the Lord, and here we look unto Him specifically the highest of all. And so it says to, unto thee I lift my eyes. It's not to the hill. It's not to the strong. It is unto him. And it's really good that we have someone to look up to, isn't it? We really need that. Whether we admit it or not, and maybe sometimes as we get older, we don't think about it because we're not asked this question. I think as we ask children these questions a lot, who are your role models? I'm going to ask the adults, who do you look up to? Now, I think it's okay to say that there's people on, in this world that we look up to. That's okay, as long as they're living for the Lord. But let us make sure that we look up to our Lord and Savior as the model. Here again, it is a personal thing. I lift my eyes. We are looking unto God. And when we do that, we are to behold. Now, again, you know my joy for looking at individual words. Behold. It means to observe and consider. In our busy lives, we don't behold very often. We move and we move and we move and we move. But to behold means that we ought to stop 
to observe and then to think about it. So when it says behold, let's stop and think. When we see this word in scripture, let us stop and consider or think. How often do we do this today? I mean, I'll be honest, not very often. My life seems to be going a mile a minute. And I rarely behold, I rarely stop and consider. But what's it telling us to stop and consider? It has this section talking about servants and masters. As the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master. What on earth is this talking about? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And in it is this idea that we are to look unto the Lord, ultimately our role model. Ultimately, we are to look up to him, the one who sits above the heavens, and to live a life like him. As I said, it's okay to have worldly role models, but ultimately, we look to him. He is our role model, and he came to earth and lived like us to demonstrate very specifically how we should respond. So we should behold, we should stop and consider and look unto the Lord and then respond. Now, the only way to really explain this is to add an example that may inject a bit of humor. (laughs) I have a dog at my house. And for those of you who've been there in the evening, you may have seen this little game she likes to play. And in this instance, she's more like a cat than a dog, but she loves to chase a laser pointer. And I mean loves to do it. And she knows about what time of the day we play this game. And she knows that I'm the one who does it. So let me unpack this for you. As soon as it starts to get dark, I look around the corner and she's there just tense, staring at my hands. Because that's where the laser pointer is. This little dot comes out of my hands. She doesn't understand. And if I pick up a pen or anything that looks like it might be that little tiny device that has the laser come out of it, she gets all tense and excited, and you can't do anything else with her. It doesn't matter. I don't know that she'd eat, in all honesty, until she gets to play. She follows me around the house and, like, sits, like, couched, ready to go, like, at an instant notice, and bam, she's off. Okay? I even have a word for this laser. And as soon as she thinks she hears that, her ears pop up. Now you're saying, why are you talking about your dog? Let me read the verse again. Behold, as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Are you that attentive to your master? Are you desperately waiting? Sometimes she whines. And she whines and she follows me around the house until I give in. Are you that way with your Lord? Are you so eager to interact with him, to engage with him, 
that you're focused on him only? Do you have a time in the day that you give up everything else until you get what you want from your Lord, from your master? Is there a time of day that he speaks to you that you know that you can expect this is it? Sometimes she gets confused, not to harp on this example too much. It'll be like today, and it's dark and overcast, and two in the afternoon, and she's sitting there looking at me. I'm like, sweetheart, it's not dark enough. Can't, can't do it right now. The laser's not strong enough. And I think, if all things being true, sometimes she would run herself almost to death, back and forth. And I wonder, and I behold, and I sit, and I consider, Am I like that with my Lord? Do we watch his hands? Do we know what it looks like before he's ready to bless us or speak to us? One more brief aspect of this. I have an old kind of coat that I wear often, especially in the winter months in the evening. And when I go in the closet and put that on, in her mind there's a connection between me wearing that. She hears a zipper. She comes right in because she knows short time after we're going to go play. Do we know when the Lord's moving in our hearts? Is there anything that we recognize that we go, hey, he's here? Are we waiting? Are we watching for the clues? Are we looking at his hands intentively to see what he'll do? And I guess the second part of that is, Will we respond when he moves? Because as soon as I reach for where I keep that laser, she goes nuts. I can barely open the door because she's pushing so hard to get out. Wouldn't it be nice if we were the same way? We knew the Lord was moving. And we're so ready to do whatever he wants. We can't even get the door open. I think that's what that verse is talking about, and I think it's a good advice for us. It goes on and says, Have mercy upon us, O God, have mercy upon us. Here we see the psalmist is moving from a singular person back to a group, to us. Now let me define grace and mercy, because sometimes we interchange those and we shouldn't. Grace, especially when we think about it in the context of being saved, is heaping undeserved blessings on a sinner. Mercy is forgiving a sinner and withholding the punishment that is justly deserved. So mercy is when we should get a punishment and we don't. Grace is when we get a blessing. Mercy. Mercy upon us. Do we pray for our brothers and sisters to have mercy when we violated the Lord's rules? Do you pray for yourself to have mercy? Do you pray for those who do not yet know the Lord to experience that mercy? The beautiful part about it is when you are saved, you experience grace and mercy. Not only are your sins forgiven, you get a huge blessing too. It goes on and talks about contempt, or you could say bitterness. And the expression here is that they're experiencing bitterness to no end. And it ties into verse 4. It says, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, the contempt of the proud. 
We must be careful not to do this to our brothers and sisters, to be prideful. As we talked about unity and the importance of it, to not help the hurt. Because there comes a point when it's too much. The world's going to do that anyway. The world's going to beat us down. It's going to give us bitterness. It's going to look at us with contempt. It's going to give us a hard time because they're at ease. Now you can look around the world and think, well, the world's not at ease. Look at what all kinds of turmoil it's in. And that's true. But to a large extent, especially in this country, as we were reminded this morning what it's like to not have electricity for an hour or two, right? we're pretty much at ease. And it's real easy to get bitter. How could the electricity not work? Well, it almost always does, like statistically. I've been in a country. I spent, uh, I spent a month in Kosovo in 2001, literally weeks after the war ended there. And electricity would sometimes happen for some amount of time. And sometimes it was a pattern, on for three hours, off for three hours. But I tell you what, when you're trying to build something, you did all your measurements, and then as soon as electricity came on, you cut everything you could so you could nail it up in the meantime. But it wouldn't always get through. So there were days late in the afternoon, I'm sitting there with a handsaw sawing lumber just to try and make it work. And dinner... You better buy something you can cook over a fire, too, because the stove wasn't always working. And you couldn't buy anything that lasted very long because the refrigerator wouldn't last but a couple of hours. It's an entirely different game of living. And you know what it did? It didn't put me at ease, but it did spiritually. That was a wonderful time. Sit around that bonfire at night, literally like catch and roast a chicken over it or something. I'm really not exaggerating. You'll get really close with people. You get even closer with the Lord when you're not in ease all the time. I'm not saying go and turn off electricity to your house and you instantly get closer to the Lord. But what I'm saying is we get really lazy and at ease, and it's easy for us to then be contemptuous toward other people and give them bitterness in their lives. It can happen for those who are in the world looking at us, but it can also happen within us as well. We can become so at ease with where we are in our Christian lives that we begin to make it harder for other people. Amos 6.1 says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountains of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. This is a warning to, I think, believers. We should not become at ease in the house of Zion. We cannot become at ease or at rest in this church, in our family, at any time, and then look to the hills. What was that first verse we read last week? I look to the hills. Did my help come from there? No. My help comes from the Lord. Are you at ease? Are your eyes looking unto the Lord? And so as we close today, I have three things for us to think about. There are some here today who need mercy in their present trouble. 
some who are experiencing difficulty, who need mercy. Where does it come from? From the Lord. And so I beg you, don't look to the hills. Don't look to Jerusalem. Look above all of that to the one who sits above the heavens, the psalmist says. Look to the Lord for your mercy. There are some here today who need both grace and mercy. In other words, you need to be saved. You need to experience the grace and the mercy that only he can give for the very first time. You need to put your trust in him so that you can be filled with the peace that only he can give. That surpasses all ability for us to explain or to illustrate. And there may be some here today who need to be bound firmly together with the other houses. That when bound together and living in peace are a beautiful illustration of how we should live our lives. Together, seeking the peace only comes from the Lord. And so as we have a song, I want to give you an opportunity to consider what are you doing here? What should you be doing here? How should we then live, to quote a scripture again? These are questions that we need to ask ourselves constantly at the beginning of the service and at the end at times when we need to seek after him. So let's have a song, a time for us to reflect and consider the peace that we look for and how we're bound together.